The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm very pleased to be joined by the screenwriter and novelist Terry Hayes, whose debut novel, I Am Pilgrim, became a global bestseller. Now he's taken his time to produce a follow-up, about ten years, but here it is, and it's called The Year of the Locust. Welcome, Terry. Thank you very much for having me. Well, before I start on that delicate ten-year gap, I've got to ask about the title, because obviously... You know, did you feel Nathaniel West had kind of shortchanged us with the Day of the Locust? Oh, well, the, yes. I, funnily enough, I I know that book, and I always did like the title. But it's a much longer book, so it certainly couldn't be done in a day. So um, we went for the Year of the Locust, but primarily because one of the characters has a very graphic tattoo of a locust on his back, and you know it has all those biblical connotations and apocalyptic world and all of those things. And you know the biggest thing in movie titles or book titles is you've got to try to make it memorable. So I thought it was memorable. I, I always loved the title of I Am Pilgrim, although I was under an enormous amount of pressure from the American uh, publishers to change the title, to change the name. But what? It's an unusual thing, I Am Pilgrim, and they wanted to call it just Pilgrim. And I thought, oh, well, you know, it sounds like we're all off to the harsh or something. And so I fought my corner. And, uh, of course, now everybody says, oh, it's brilliant title and, and that I can't find anybody who thought it wasn't such a good idea but yeah you know that that's the publishing world <laughs> well now that book did what most debut books don't in that it sold absolute truckloads yeah. was that something that you were surprised by when you reflect on it do you go I know what I was doing right. No, no, no. I mean, there's some, during the writing of it, there was some nights I would go to bed and uh, my wife would ask me how it went. And I'd tell her, you know, there's little doubt that I'm a genius. <laughs> this is just going to go through the roof. Mostly it was, why did I ever do this? This is the most stupid idea I've ever had. It will never get finished. Nobody will read it. So it was a total roller coaster ride. And uh, so when it met with, you know, some commercial and critical success, it was sort of like, well, I anticipated that. What I didn't say to people was I'd anticipated everything else on the spectrum. I had no idea. I really didn't. Now, why did you do it? What's made you turn it off? Because you've, you've been toiling for many years with great success in the vineyards of Hollywood screenwriting, which, by all accounts, is, is a, you know, a lucrative and enjoyable gig. What made you think, I want to write a thriller? Um, it's lucrative, but it's certainly not enjoyable. You know, uh, film is a director's medium, and you have to understand that. And a lot of writers don't, so they keep trying to fight their corner, and, and why fight a battle you'll never win? <clears throat> you know, the movie stars defer to the director. They have to. Somebody has to be leading this sort of chaos. So a writer is a necessary evil in most 
Hollywood productions. You take a movie, an animated movie like Pocahontas, and uh, Mel Gibson voiced the lead character in that, and uh, so it's a number of years ago. But on that movie, there were 26 screenwriters and producers. So it's very hard in Hollywood to actually say you created this. Uh, a director will interpret it and uh, an actor will bring his own set of ideas and thoughts to it. And I was always interested in novels. Uh, growing up, I, I was a kid that read all the time. I didn't go to movies all the time. And so that's what I thought writers did. I had to go and make movies to discover that you're one cog in a very complex machine. And uh, it's hard to have a, a unique voice in that world. Everything tends to, be, to become much more anodyne. And uh, if you're working on big-budget movies, that becomes, you know, by committee. So I got sick of it. <laughs> I mean, are there elements of the craft that crosses over? I mean, I mean, I know, that, for example, there's a you know, whole history. We know that sort of writers who start out writing novels and go to Hollywood and emerge broken men or women. No. Um, you know, Fitzgerald being a kind of classic example, but yeah. you've done it the other way round with more aplomb. Um, <laughs> are the lessons of structure, are the lessons of how you construct a plot and so forth, are they something that reads across or is it a totally different world? It's very different. It, it, it's very different because a novel relies, in my view, upon a depth of understanding about the characters. The, the narrative has to be more complex to sustain, especially longer books, whereas movies tend to be much more like the the, the precy notes to, to, to a novel and what you're relying on is, is a great actor to bring a lot of that depth to it. So, you know, brevity is the soul of wit. It's also a very necessary part of writing a screenplay. You've got 120 pages and there's a lot of white space, a lot of white space on that. So, you know, you, you cast Christian Bale in a lead role, great actor, phenomenal actor, and you get one interpretation. You cast Steven Seagal in the same role and, uh, you know, everybody's heading for the exits. Um, <laughs> and that there's Sorry, only Stephen. so much you can describe. I, I worked for quite a long time on a movie called Fly plan which was written for a man who a single father losing his child on a plane the child has been abducted on an international flight and is hidden somewhere in the plane of course you then learn that maybe he didn't check the kid onto the plane it becomes really quite complex so anyway I got a call one day saying um look you know we're getting quite a good response to the script and um Jodie Foster's probably going to play the lead role now it didn't matter how much you described this man <laughs> it was definitely not going to be Jodie Foster so everybody's off back, back to the drawing board now so in a way, you don't want to describe too much of the character. You know, people say, oh, do you write with an actor in mind? Oh, yeah, write with Brad Pitt in mind. And if you don't get Brad Pitt, you might get Julia Roberts. <laughs> so that becomes not necessarily an asset. So it's very different. You know, when you're doing a novel, you really have to know the backstory of every character. 
you don't in a movie. That, that You know, that's not going to help get the movie made. More explosions will help, there's no doubt. But character depth, no. Not, not as Hollywood exists at the moment. <laughs> well, you've got some explosions in here as well. I mean, it's yes. a kind of rollicking thriller. But can you say, I mean, this 10 years, was that... Was it something you were spending 10 years writing and sketching and thinking about? Were you, you know, just taking a few years off just to check your Amazon rankings? What? <laughs> um, combination of both. I was um, very downcast after Pilgrim, which is counterintuitive because, you know, one would think that you'd, uh, you know, drink beer and play Skittles and go shopping and, and do all of those things. I, I found it very difficult. Really, really difficult. I'd been a migrant child to Australia. I'd arrived in Australia when I was five in Sydney in the year of the worst bushfires that uh, Sydney had endured. And uh, it was alienating enough without the damn bushfires. We didn't know anybody in Australia. We'd gone out to Australia for £10 and... uh, I don't think Australia got a bargain, but anyway, we were on the boat and we got off and very confronting for a five-year-old. My, my brother, who's three years older than me, found it much easier to deal with. Um, I didn't, so I hid in books. I read a real lot, a real lot. What did you read? Was it oh, thrillers, it, it, well, genre fiction? I, you... I read all of that stuff that the local library allowed young children to read. And then at 10, my dad went up there and uh, signed some form that said that I was allowed to borrow books from the adult section, which was, you know, full of inappropriate content. So, of course, wonderful for a 10 or 11-year-old. And so... At that age, I set myself the task of reading the works of a given author. So one summer, seven weeks holiday, you know, in Australia over Christmas, we were not an affluent family by any means. Uh, We didn't have a car or anything. So I started reading. So I read all the works of D.H. Lawrence. I read all the works of Herman Hesse. That's enough to turn you off being a writer, I can tell you. They were a slog. <laughs> and that. But then I also read Hemingway and I read Anna Karenin and uh, turned me around. I, I was 16 uh, and I read that and I thought, my God, literary fiction can move with all the pace of a thriller. And I'd read a lot of commercial books as well, you know, so I, I wasn't a literary snob about it, but I did feel I wanted to be well-educated. So around about the age of eight, I decided I would be a writer. Okay, you know, why not? But it lived with me all of my life. I went into journalism because I wanted to be a writer. I got the opportunity to write movies, so I thought, well, that's writing and it can be well paid. And that, But always I wanted to be a novelist. I Am Pilgrim comes out and be careful what you wish for. I got it. And I had a big hole. I had a big hole where ambition and desire and so much of my childhood was intertwined. It was like part of my DNA. And suddenly I'd done it. And I didn't know, Sam, what to do. I did not know what to do. I seriously thought of becoming a visual artist, becoming a painter. I can't draw and I can't paint, but it didn't stop me thinking. I I don't know. Was it because you weren't sure whether you could follow it or because you found that there wasn't satisfaction that you expected in having done it? No, I felt that I'd fulfilled something. I felt, you know, I mean, people make bucket lists. I don't. But I only have one thing on my list. I was going to write. 
a well-received novel. And I'd done it. And I thought, my God. You know, most people say, oh, well, just go write another one. But it wasn't that easy because there was so much of relatively unhappy childhood woven into all of that. And I'd wanted it so much. I just wasn't prepared when it arrived. I used to just go and sit in my office and say, oh, yeah, write, write another page if you're lucky, if you're doing OK, you'll write a page. I was telling a story, wound up in the story. The whole publication side of it was a vastly different thing. And that so for quite a bit of time, I was lost. Uh, it was like postpartum depression without denigrating that, which is an awful thing for anybody to go through now, you know. But that's the way I think of it to myself. So, you know, I thought, well, I'd better get back into harness. I'd better write something. And I'd had an idea for this book and I thought, oh, well, I've got that under control. I, I know the opening sentence and I know the final sentence. So I've just got to fill it all in in between. Uh, and I knew there'd be a crucifixion in it, you know, that had sold well in the Bible and I thought, well, might as well, <laughs> might as well do that. And I knew that there were other elements. I was aware that, I didn't want to do this antisocial loner with no friends, misanthropic, miserable, bloody person that was the hero of I Am Pilgrim. I thought, oh, no, I can't spend any more time with him. I can't. No, no, I need to be more socialised. So I gave him a relationship, a committed, you know, romantic relationship. He's partners are not married but his partner becomes pregnant so I want to deal with the family knew all those things all the while here as we should say for listeners who haven't read the book it was a denied area denied access a denied access area uh, denied spy. access area spy which means he spends his time parachuting into very very dangerous places on it well not parachuting normally sneaking yes. into very very dangerous places um and yes. coming back all beaten up if he comes back at all. Yes, he goes into Iran, you know, sort of guy that you send across the border into Russia or into Yemen. Or, or it, 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 The worse the place, the more likely he is to go. So I knew he'd be very, very different to Pilgrim and I wanted that. So I thought, oh, you know, got this sort of under control. Now we go on the journey. Well, I went down the rabbit hole and didn't come up for eight and a half years. You know, well, it is quite it. a rabbit hole. Now, I wanted to ask you a bit about the structure of the book because... The first third of it presents very much as a kind of conventional spy thriller. Mm -hmm. And then the sort of middle third, we're into sort of William Gibson territory. Mm -hmm. And then the final third is, if you'll forgive me for using the critical term, completely bananas. Yes. Did you have that kind of conception of the arc of it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I had to keep it interesting for myself. And, you know, the spy genre is pretty dusty. You know, it's pretty hard to think up new things because they're always the disaffected loner and that. So I, I want to do something different. And I don't think of it so much as a spy thriller. I, I know that's how it's marketed and that. I think of it more as an adventure story. And the trick was to make him a scientist and things more from a metaphysical realm intrude on his life. And I loved the moment where he's about to go into a canyon in Iran and, he, he, you know, that's the route that he has to follow to rendezvous with somebody. And he stops. And the only way he can explain it is he hears gunfire from the future. And now he's, you know, he's in a bit of a crisis. That obviously 
can't exist because he's a scientist. He believes in the world of number and weight and, and the scientific method and all of that. But on the other hand... He's definitely hearing this. And one of the horses doesn't seem too keen to go in either, one of his pack horses. So he decides to take the much longer route and avoid the canyon. He finds out later they were waiting for him. And that's a fairly confronting moment for him. And he's wondering, is that intuition? Is that tradecraft developed over many years that I'm thinking to myself, that is a place you could get ambushed? It doesn't matter. He heard this stuff. Now, when he has to describe that to the head of the CIA or to his romantic partner, well, of course, they think, oh, you know, time for him to get sectioned. And there's a number of events like this. He hears the wolves and he knows the wolves in... (laughs) There's no wolves in Maryland where he lives, but they're calling to him. He's going to Russia. So, you know, you try to thread it through and then it all comes to a climax. Was that kind of metaphysical kind of supernatural possibly i mean it's not you maybe you'll set me straight i mean it was either supernatural or magic as undiscovered science aspect to it was that kind of baked in from the start did you yes. think i want this to be more than just a sort of thing? definitely because you see when you're doing things of the length of pilgrim or, or locust or that i have to keep it interesting to myself people say oh you know why do you write things well i'm I guess, you know, I like being a storyteller. But I also like going on the journey. I I, I like finding out things, confronting things, thinking about things. And, you know, he he says right at the end of the book, we're riders on the storm. That's all we are and can ever hope to be, riders on the storm. That's been his life. He's ridden the storm. And he's seen things out there, and I... I often think of those great lines from Blade Runner, you know, Rutger Hauer, I've stood Same on the... things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> yeah, I've stood on the, on the shoulder of Orion or whatever it is. David Webb Peoples wrote it and then Rutger rewrote it and it's brilliant about the, the mysteries of the universe. I thought, hey, wouldn't that be interesting? It's this guy who's qualified in nuclear submarines and that has to confront things that nobody will believe. Nobody will believe. And, of course, his wife, his romantic partner, is a doctor. She's certainly suffering from you know, post-traumatic stress. And he starts to think maybe he is too. So you're trying to make the genre different to what it was. You know, Otherwise, look, I'm the Bee Gees tribute band. Every Saturday night I'm going out there playing, you, you know, Saturday Night Fever or, or whatever. Pilgrim, I, I'm very, very proud of Pilgrim as a book. I'm very, very proud of Locust. Are they different? Sure. Thank God. You know, otherwise I'm just repeating myself. So when do you think of this one being set? Is it sort of near future? Because I mean, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which I know you, you weave in yes. about two-thirds of the way through, I was like, oh, God, he's, you know, <laughs> he's finished this quite quickly. <laughs> or maybe it comes in in the rewrite. It's obviously a historical event in this book. I mean, it's quite funny where it's set, or fuzzy where it's set. When, when do you think of its time frame? Yeah, I think uh, somewhere at the beginning it says the day after tomorrow. I, I've always been interested in leading-edge science, you know, or on-the-frontier science. Pilgrim deals with, you know, recreation of the smallpox virus. I don't, I don't think we're giving away too many spoilers here. And that, now, you know, as far as I'm concerned, and people tell me, that's not a matter of if, that's when. 
you know, Alvin Toffler, Future Shock, that everything's happening so fast. Now, it's very hard for us to control. We're seeing exactly that with AI. Nobody knows what AI is, but the smart people are frightened. <laughs> so I'm very interested in the way that things are developing. And, you know, of course, we had COVID. Now, COVID's a walk in the park compared to smallpox. But somebody is going to work out that they can do this. In the time since Pilgrim was published, it's become exponentially easier to do it because of the, the advances in, so, in bioengineering, many other things. The hottest thing in the world in military science at the moment is cloaking technology. Just the other day, the United States lost a, a stealth-equipped fighter jet. They couldn't find it for three days. So yeah, it, it it's was, just invisible, obviously. Well, yeah, they, they, they know, well, what happened to this? They weren't like, very difficult to track it. Using Harry Potter's cloak of invisibility, which is what cloaking technology really is, whoever breaks that has now got a quantum leap above everybody else. You'll have a tank on a battlefield that you can't see. And the first thing you'll know is when the shell emerges from the cloak of invisibility and hits your tank. And it's a total game changer. So that is being developed. I didn't make that up. It's in the book. Off-Earth Mining? Well, three weeks after the book went to the printers, NASA announced that it had landed a craft on an asteroid and it brought back an Earth sample, a, a, a sample of all. Yeah, so there's, there's, in this book, slightly implausibly, maybe it's the most implausible thing in a, a science fiction book, is that Russia's ahead in the space race. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's said in Bacon or Cosmodrome, and that's where Yuri Gagarin left Earth atmosphere, the, f the first person to ever leave Earth atmosphere. The West would never have landed a man on the moon without Yuri Gagarin. And they were ahead. Their advances in rocketry were quite amazing, way beyond anything the Americans were doing. The Americans caught up. But, of course, you know, we don't read much about the Russian history, <laughs> you know, history's written by the victors. So, yeah, it, it was an opportunity to look back at the Russian, you know, space program and Baikonur is on the Great Steps. It's a bleak and dreadful place and uh, it had once been part of the Gulag. So, you know, you get to throw a lot in there about, you know, the, the history of the 20th century. Yeah, it's a brilliant bleak setting. When you are, as you say, you're interested in this cutting-edge science stuff, how important is it, because I know writers seem to differ, particularly writers of thrillers or science fiction, on how important it is to make it, if you like, kind of plausible? I mean, Ian M. Banks always just said, I don't do any research, I just make it up, I'm writing fiction. Yeah, do sure. You? I mean, like, was this thing, you've got your cloaking MacGuffin, for instance, that yes. bends light, I hope that's not a spoiler. Yeah. But then it also manages to hide a submarine from sonar, and I'm like, isn't that sound? Yeah. Do you just go, doesn't matter? No, no. I, uh, the trick to me, and look, everybody's got different view of this, you know, uh, and that, so that's great. This just happens to be my view. I don't think there's a correct view. I figure that, you, you know, you tell a million small truths to get people to believe the one big lie. And, you know, there, there are people, you only have to read your reviews on Amazon to, to realise that people read your book with Google open next to them. And they'll say, oh, you know, that Walter P32 
two, so nine shot magazine, this moron's got him firing 11 shots out of that magazine and therefore I do not believe anything else he says. So my theory is that you try to make everything as believable as possible, get the reader to suspend disbelief and then get them to believe that there really is a denied access area spy called Kane and that his real name is Ridley Walker. And that was a book written by Russell Hogan. Yeah, I wondered whether that Ridley Walker was a deliberate echo or a... Oh, yeah, he doesn't that's a great book. It's a difficult book, but I think it's a wonderful book and I think uh, Russell Hogan was a great writer. And that, yeah, look, you know, it, it's full of stuff that uh, means something to me and uh, lyrics from songs and moments from movies and things. And I, I don't expect anybody to pick up on this, but I had to find him a real name and I thought, well, here's an opportunity to pay tribute to a great writer. You actually also Introduce his name in quite a kind of casual way. I think we're about 100 pages in before we learn his first name and yeah. 300 pages in before we learn his second name. What makes you sort of seed it like that? Do you, is it to keep the mystique of his being a denied access agent or do you just yeah. think it sort of doesn't matter that reader doesn't have his name in their head? No, no, no. I think you have to try to be revelatory on every page, maybe every paragraph, as much as you can be. So, you know, you're hoping that you send the reader down the track that his name is Kane, but you tell them that's a code name, and then you have the head of the CIA call him Ridley. And I'm hoping the reader says, oh, OK, there's a truth to that. Of course the head of the CIA would know who he really is. and that. So, yeah, so you do that, and then later on somebody says that his real name is Ridley Walker. And uh, he tells it to a man uh, confronting a very, very difficult situation in a submarine. And the man asks him who he really is. And so, you know, you get some sort of frisson of, um, of interest there and you think, well, that's a legitimate question in those terrible circumstances and you learn something. So, yeah, it's why they're, they're difficult. Other people might not find them difficult to write. I find it difficult to write because you're seeding everything through. You're, you're, you're putting little clues here and clues you're there. You're very big on foreshadowing, I notice. You have a lot of, I was saying, you know, not quite like hold that thought, but they'll say, this thing that happened here turned out to be really important, you know, 300 pages on. Yeah. Is, that, is that another getting the hooks in the reader? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's deliberate. That's to, to pay it off. And what you're hoping to do is that the reader thinks, oh, yeah, that's sort of interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's this grandfather watching a crucifixion and, uh, oh, yeah, well, that's understandable. It's his family that have been crucified or whatever. So, yeah. And then several hundred pages later, the grandfather turns up again with a piece of information that is fairly catastrophic. Yeah, it's kind of unhelpful. Yeah, yes, that's right. But, but it comes from a nice place. He doesn't mean to be so destructive, but he is. So, yes, you sort of, for me as a writer, you get a, a sense of excitement yourself because you're thinking, oh, well, there's got to be a few people here watching this crucifixion. You know, we've we, we got to have the, the, the extras, we got to have the assembled mass. And, that, and so you think, well, who are they? And then you think, oh, well, I'll be a member of the family. And then suddenly, ding, 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 you think, well, I might be able to use that much later on 
if I decide to do such and such. So you store it away. Do you kind of plot in advance? I mean, I, there's some people, like I was amazed that Lee Child, for instance, Lee says even if he writes himself completely into a corner, he'll never go back and retcon and re-architect the plot. He'll find a way of getting his character out of it. So he writes without a plan. It sounds like you've got some sort of sense of what the story beats are going to be before you fill yeah. it in. The Locust, uh, I think in its published form, is 250,000 words. Well, down the bottom of my computer, it tells me that I wrote a million. And uh, it's hard to throw away 750,000 words. Believe me, that's hard. Bloody hell. And See, that... speaking as a journalist who gets paid by the word, I'm like, I've never... <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you know, and this whole sequence is set under the bloody North Pole and, oh, my God, uh, and that... But... Director's cuts can look like Stephen King's The Stand extended edition, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's right, that's right. That, that, the expanded version of The Year of the Locust. So, no, I need to know something about the characters and I need to know the journey they go on. And I need some action sequences in there, but, and yet which basically come from, wouldn't it be neat if I could do such and such? Or, I, I mean, there is a crucifixion in it, and that came from, uh, I was uh, dealing on another project, a movie project with Mel Gibson when he was making Passion of the Christ. And um, he's very devout in his faith, and um, it's not a faith of love and compassion. It's a, uh, faith more of um, of punishment and and sin and that. And so he explained to me in huge detail what actually happens to you during a crucifixion, physically what happens to you. Oh, my God. And he said to me then, he said, oh, you know, it's not an execution, Terry, not an execution, it's death by torture. And that, oh, oh OK, Mel, I, I mean, from what you've said, I will believe that. So when it came to writing this... Uh, I had an expert's analysis of this. I mean, you know, they yeah. made a whole film of fiction details via Mel Gibson. Minor spoiler, but it's quite early on in the book, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, you said your screenwriting, you know, it's a much simpler thing. Do you see this book being something that could be filmic? I mean, when you write knowing you know, there's a payoff for making it into a film, there's an extra boost to the books, all that, do you kind of think, oh, this scene will be filmic, this will work? Do you see this turning to film? I didn't think Pilgrim did, did it? Well, Pilgrim will be made as a film. That's a whole complex series of negotiations and going on at the moment. And I have full confidence that that is going to happen. Yeah, I, I, what I do is I, I imagine the scene, even if it's you know, a group of people sitting in a wood-panelled room talking, I imagine the scene and, uh, and then I try to see it. I say, OK, well, how big's the room? Uh, who's in there? How is that room dressed, you know, the desks and all that? So I try to visualise it, then I describe that. And um, I think when you're dealing with a film, you try to make everything really quite special. So that flows over into novels, you know. You, it, it's no, uh, you know, Locust or Pilgrim wouldn't be very good in my view, I'm not saying it would ruin the book, but if they're set in Venice, you know, uh, uh, everybody's been to Venice and the people that haven't been to Venice have seen it on YouTube or they've seen it in 500 other movies and if they haven't done any of that, then they're probably not very interested in Venice. So that's not a good thing to, <laughs> to follow. So, you know, you're trying to think up more unique situations. So in Pilgrim, you know, it's in a gladiatorial 
Colosseum, the theatre of death. And, you know, I had to do a lot of research on various, you know, not the Colosseum. There's a climax of the book. I'm sorry? The climax of the book. The climax of the book. This, the climax, is in a place called Baconor Cosmodrome. Okay. I had to learn all about that. But it's not like... It would have been very different had it been, well, here we are at the Kennedy Space Centre in Florida. Everybody's thinking, oh, yeah, well, off we go. This is not something that is commonly known. And um, one of the sequences in the book takes place in Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan. And that's in there because I, years ago, had read that it was once the wealthiest city in the world. I thought, what? But, yeah. It was, and that, so I found that interesting and I found a, an interesting environment in which to to set part of the book. So I have to imagine it, I have to research it, I have to visualise it, then I have to describe well, it. Well, I think it remains to be asked, you said after the first book you had something like postpartum depression. Are you feeling OK after this one? Well, yeah, I've been through it before. I'm already, you know, I've been contracted to write Pilgrim 2 and so I'm already, you know, working on the See, plot. I'll go back to that guy. Oh, I've got to. Well, I'm sick of this guy and his bloody family. You know, I mean, oh, God almighty, people in love. There's no drama there. No, so I'm going back to the old misanthrope and I know the characters, so that's good. The uh, One of the girls uh, who's a murderer in Pilgrim comes back and Ben Bradley, his black American friend and colleague... He comes back. So I'm lucky. I've got a group of people that I've spent a lot of time with. And, you know, I'm working on the plot. I've got a great opening. got a fantastic opening. What happens after that is open to question. Well, don't take ten years to decide. Terry Hayes, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks. It's been fun. (laughs) 